0: welcome friends i'm your host adrian and yes you found us tea with puppets a podcast about canadian stamp collecting yeah this is episode number 22 and today we'll be talking about an event that began 50 years ago this past week in montreal that's right we'll be talking expo 67 more in just a moment friends, thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoyed that. It's a small taste of the official Expo 67 theme song composed by Stéphane Venn. It was titled, Hey Friend, Say Friend, Un Jour, Un Jour. The song was selected from an international competition with over 2200 entries from 35 countries. Unfortunately, Expo organizers weren't quite so pleased because Venn's song didn't directly mention Montreal or Expo 67 itself. Here Stefan Venn defending his choice at the time on CBC Radio.
1: In Montreal, Alec Bellini talked with the song's composer, Stefan Venn.
0: Do you feel
1: that the criticism that's been heard is justified that in your song there's no mention of Montreal or of Expo?
2: That's one point of view i don't think that it's the only one if you remember the national anthem of france la marseillaise there's no mention of france in all the national anthems in the world there's only two who mention the name of the country and it's the Oh canada which we had much trouble to push in parliament and the german one if it had been so uh, necessary to put let's say uh, hard expo, sell, sell canada yes. hard sell hard yeah, sell yeah, uh, yeah. Well, i believe expo would have had chosen A song that would have that type of advertising but I had a hint and that hint was confirmed by American publishers they told the Canadian publisher that if the song would have mentioned Montreal or Expo come to Expo it would have been just like drink coca-cola or uh, use Westinghouse and the song would not have been used on a radio as a regular song it would have been used as a commercial jingle and then
0: Expo would have been forced to pay uh, for every airplay. Nevertheless, the expo organizers took matters into their own hands. They recut the song with Quebecois singer Michel Richard. Here is a sample of that intro. <laughs> As you notice, it's mentioning Montreal and the Expo in Montreal, so it was a small change. However, Venn did not take this line down, and with the help of singer Donald Lutrec and his manager, he was able to record the original track and get copies out to the stores right after the Michel Richard version was heard on Radio Canada. Funnily enough, most people think Canada by Bob Gimby is the official Expo 67 song. A bit of it now is playing in the background at this moment. Now, the reason that many people might associate the Canada song by Bob Gimby or Bobby Gimby is that this was the 100th anniversary of Canada and this song was very popular and made for the centenary for Canada. So, obviously, the memories have conflated to bring the official Expo song to be the one that was actually written for the 100th anniversary of Canada. Nevertheless, this is not the only controversy Expo 67 would have. They dealt with Vietnam protesters at the U.S. Pavilion, and that was handled quite well with chairs and coke. And there was also a transit strike that happened in September that lasted for 30 days and really hampered the amount of people that could get to the Expo 67 location. Now, there are many stories about Expo 67 to be heard. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Ask anyone from Montreal over 55, and they have a story. This year, in the 50th anniversary of Expo 67, lots of these stories are being rediscovered by those of us who are too young to remember, or for those of us yet to be born. As much as I'd love to cover them all for you here, I won't be able to. Nonetheless, I will make sure to add links in the show notes for you to discover these stories and more. Of course, some of you may already know most of them, But, you know, there will still be links for you to have a chance to reminisce on your time at Expo 67. One thing is true. If you live in Montreal, it's hard to avoid celebrations this year. Montreal is celebrating its 375th anniversary, but also the 50th anniversary of Expo 67, which opened 50 years ago on April 27th. 1967. They've even devised a passport scheme to celebrate very similarly to what they used all those years back then. Let's also not forget that 50 years ago, Canada was celebrating its centennial year and the party was seemingly centered in Montreal. We are now celebrating the 150th birthday of Canada, so this year seems to be one where all these anniversaries are intertwined. So how is this all brought back to Canadian stamps? This past week, Canada Post started their Canada 150 celebrations in earnest. They announced that over the coming five weeks, 10 stamps will be issued to celebrate events in Canadian history from the past 50 years. And if you know, already heard, or if you haven't already guessed it, the first stamp issued in this special series is a stamp of the amazing Habitat 67, a building created by world-famous architect Moshe Shafti, for Expo 67. Therefore, it was for this reason I decided to dedicate this episode to the stamps issued by Canada Post for Expo 67 and have us delve a bit deeper into the history behind the stamp. So let's start with a closer look at Expo 67, an event that left its mark on the city, the province, the country, and the world 50 years ago. The story of Expo 67 actually starts remarkably with the fact that Montreal was not supposed to have the expo. Canada and Russia, or USSR at the time, were in the pursuit of this event, an officially sanctioned World's Fair from the Bureau International des Expositions, or the BIE. When voting happened in May 1960, Moscow won after five votes. However, in April 1962, the Soviets scrapped plans to host the fair because of financial constraints and security concerns. Montreal's Mayor Jean Drapeau lobbied the Canadian government to try and secure the event, and as we know, they were successful in this second chance, but they needed to work quick. In late 1962, the federal government established a crown company, the Canadian corporation for the 1967 World Exhibition. Its main purpose was to build and run the exposition. The exhibition was to be a three-way partnership with 50% participation by the federal government, 37.5% by the Quebec government, and 12.5% by the city of Montreal. When this was all in place, they now needed a theme. A conference of educators, literary figures, and intellectuals met in Montebello, Quebec, to choose a theme for the exhibition. What emerged was the theme of Man and His World. It was derived from the title of a book by the French author, poet, and aviator, Antoine de Saint-Experé, Terre des Hommes. By late 1963, the main plan for the expo was completed, but the main issue now was where could this be held in Montreal? Several sites were proposed as the main expo grounds. One location that was considered was Mount Royal Park to the north of the downtown core, but eventually Drapeau and his team had the idea to create new islands in the St. Lawrence River and to enlarge the existing St. Helens Island. The choice overcame opposition from Montreal's surrounding municipalities and also prevented land speculation. In all, it took about 25 million tons of fill to construct the islands for Expo 67. About 12% of the dirt came from excavations of the Montreal metro system that was already under construction even before expo 67 was awarded there was also the creation of the Autoroute de to carry which also had begun and had a deadline of april 1967 to help the flow of traffic to the expo the remainder of the fill came from quarries on montreal on the south shore but as soon as they realized they would not have enough fill they added some lakes and canals to the islands to reduce the amount of dirt required the expo corporation was not responsible for this work so they awaited eagerly to get started on building all the exhibitions Finally, on June 20th, 1964, the city of Montreal transferred the land to the corporation so it could get started. The Expo Corporation would only have 1,042 days to build everything and have it functioning for opening day. A computer program had predicted that the event could not possibly be constructed in time, which would have certainly added to the stress. There were also lots of partners to consider and significant amount of money being spent. There were some 120 governments present at the expo in 60 pavilions and thousands of private exhibitors and sponsors participated in 53 private pavilions and through various facilities on the site. The nations that agreed to participate in Expo 67 either built their own pavilions or combined with other nations in regional pavilions. Among them, the Soviet Union spent approximately $15 million, Czechoslovakia $10 million, and the United States more than $9 million. There were also new approaches taken by some of the world's greatest architects in designing these pavilions. Arthur Erickson's Pyramid Man in his community was built from hexagonal frames of Douglas fir, The German pavilion, a 15-story multi-peak tent of plastic, indicated how concept and materials might radically alter the design of buildings such as auditoriums, and Buckminster Fuller's geodisc dome for the U.S. pavilion became the prototype for a new trend in construction. The interiors of the pavilions also varied greatly. Some presented prosic displays of consumer goods and machinery, while others imaginatively depicted their history and cultural traditions. To get the Expo built on time, Colonel Edward Churchill, Director of Installations for Expo 67, used the then new project management tool known as the Critical Path Method or CPM. The essential technique for using CPM is to construct a model of the project that includes the following. One, a list of all the activities required to complete the project, typically categorized with a work breakdown structure. Two, the time or duration that each activity will take to complete three, the dependencies between the activities, and, finally, four, logical endpoints such as milestones or deliverable items. Using these values, CPM calculates the longest path of planned activities to a logical endpoint or to the end of the project and the earliest and latest that each activity can start and finish without making the project longer. This process determined which activities were critical, i.e. on the longest path, and which have total float, i.e. can be delayed without making the project longer. So with these new techniques, hard work, a bit of luck, and an amazing management group, on April 28, 1967, the opening day of Expo, everything was ready. New auto routes had been built, a metro system was unveiled, the Concorde Bridge erected, and over 90 pavilions on site were built by countries, industries, and corporations. There were also many other transportation options for visitors at Expo 67, including the Expo Express, a rapid transit system, a monorail that allowed visitors to see the pavilions from above, the cable cars at La Ronde, an on-site amusement park, the Vaporetto, which navigated across the canal, and there was even a hovercraft. Official opening ceremonies were held on Thursday afternoon, April 27, 1967. The ceremonies were an invitation-only event held at Place des Nations. There were over 7,000 guests from 62 countries in attendance. Canada's Governor-General, Roland Michener, proclaimed the exhibition open after the Expo flame was ignited by Prime Minister Pearson. It was a lovely ceremony, very reminiscent of an Olympic opening ceremony, minus the Procession of Nations and the dance number. Now, to get a feel of the opening day, here is a report from the CBC describing the scene.
3: (laughs)
1: From Place des Nations at Expo 67, CBC Radio presents the official opening of the Universal and International Exhibition of 1967 at Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I'm Bob McGregor of the Special Events Department of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Expo 67's opening is a truly international event. Sixty-two countries are represented here, and our broadcast of the opening ceremonies of the fair this afternoon is also international. With me to comment on the official opening is Godfrey Talbot, the palace correspondent for the British Broadcasting Corporation. Now, our broadcast location for the ceremony is at Place des Nations, a 6,000-seat open-air amphitheater that is near the center part of the 1,000-acre site on two largely made man-made islands in the St. Lawrence River. Godfrey, today the Place des Nations is truly the place of nations and this world showpiece this place of
4: the nations is basking in the sun this the great day is a golden day of blue sky it's cool but it's brilliant it's just about 52 degrees and it's lovely and this geometrically beautiful arena is packed with eminent guests listening to the band and is a spectacle in itself but the setting around us that is the superb panorama before us on the next island but dominating our view straight ahead there's the british pavilion towers stark and white and sheer as the cliffs of dover 200 feet high with a giant, solid, three-dimensional Union Jack on top of it. To the right there, the Pavilion of France, huge and elegant with its long, thin, sculptured steel strips giving the impression of a huge, swirling ballet skirt. And to the left of Britain's building, The eye is caught by the top of the red tent pavilion of Ethiopia. Haile Selassie, the Lion of Judah himself, will be here next week to see it and to see the lion on top of that pagoda. But especially one is struck by the architecturally exciting steel frames of the theme pavilions there. Man the producer, man the explorer, and the square white steel and wood of the Scandinavian building. And the huge sweeping roof there of the Soviet pavilion, a magnificent feature of this fair, full of sputniks and magnificent. Linked by a bridge over the water to the United States Pavilion, a vast transparent bubble, 20 stories high, just hidden from our sight here by the nearby green-white and awning of the Expo Express station of this arena. And swinging round, the panorama to our right is just as exciting a skyline as on the other side, the inverted pyramid of Canada, and on this side of it, the wigwam, the stylized teepee of the Indians of Canada, and the Atlantic Provinces' mainmast flying the signal flags of welcome, the United Nations building flying 117 flags from the roof, the Christian Pavilion, where many faiths combine to show the role of religion in this fair, and at our backs, the water, which encompasses and interlaces all these Expo Islands. The half-mile broad St. Lawrence River itself, fast-flowing, and there I see the top of the first seaway bridge. I well remember the Queen opening that seaway in 59. There's the old Victoria Bridge, right across the St. Lawrence, and here beside us at this express station, the new bridge made for Expo, very low, so that it doesn't obstruct the skyline. And what a skyline there, Montreal Harbor and the city itself, the soaring new skyscraper blocks set against Mount Royal with its cross on top, that mountain from which this city gets its name. Such is the setting of this opening in the stadium Place des Nations. And I must say that in a quarter of a century of describing great
1: occasions around the world, I don't think I've ever seen a more dramatic setting. Godfrey, one of the impressive parts about the site of Expo 67 is its size. You couldn't possibly walk from one end to the other. It's about three and a half miles from the upstream end to the downstream. And the size of the fair has given it interest, but it has created a problem. People come to world's fairs, and they don't like to do a lot of walking. The island is not only big, it's stretched out. And there's a green park right in the middle of it, St. Helens Island, a beautiful park that Montrealers have enjoyed for years and are going to enjoy even more this year since it has been enlarged to accommodate Expo 67. To help the fair visitors to get from one end to the other, Expo has provided a free electric train service, the price of which will be included in your admission ticket to the fair.
0: You can definitely hear the excitement from the announcer and commentator. So you can only imagine how excited people were to get in and see this amazing event. It also had a unique way to handle tickets. They created an idea of the Expo Passport, which for $35 offered an adult unlimited access to the fair for the entire season. On the front was the Expo 67 logo designed by Montreal artist Julien Herbert. The basic unit of the logo is an ancient symbol of a man in the shape of Hawaii. Two of the symbols, pictograms of man, are linked as to represent friendship. The icon was repeated in a circular arrangement to represent friendship around the world. It must have really seemed like the whole world was coming to. On the morning of Friday, April 28, 1967, with a Space Age style countdown, A capacity crowd waited at Place des Coyes as an atomic clock countdown ended at precisely 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and the gates were opened. An estimated crowd of over 300,000 visitors showed up just for the opening day, which far exceeded the expected crowd. You can hear the excitement at the gates from this report on the scene from CBC Radio. The
5: time is now exactly 9.29. It's 9.29, and we're standing behind Colonel Churchill. Just wonderful. Everybody full of gaiety and holiday spirit, you the flag ever Everything you see wonderful. this day? Oh, sure. I was certain all the time. Who's in charge of the weather pavilion? Well, this is a combination of Philip DeGallon and, <laughs> and Churchill. That's right. Uh huh. Wonderful job, sir. Well, I think that we're all very pleased. you feel any letdown today, Colonel? Not at all. This is the beginning, not the end. All uh-huh. uh-huh. 30 Twenty nine seconds. seconds to go. minutes. Twenty seven. Five. 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 Five.
0: As you can hear, it was quite exciting. And the first person through the expo gates on April 28th was Al Carter from Chicago, who had been waiting at the entrance for 24 hours. He was presented with a Swiss watch. Now, as I was not born yet, I can only imagine how amazing this was. You can certainly feel the electricity from these news reports. It does something much more than looking at mere photos. For those born after Expo 67, the only direct experience most Montrealers and visitors to the city will now have of Expo 67 is the Ronde Amusement Park. Just driving to it, one is just amazed at the vast expanse Expo 67 must have been. But La Ronde is no slouch either. It was designed and always intended to be a lasting legacy of Expo 67. For those that don't know, La Ronde is an amusement park on 146 acres located on the northern tip of St. Helens Island. It has all kinds of rides now, but back then it also had restaurants, beer halls, which, unlike today, were accessible until 2.30 a.m. nightly. Here is a CBC report from La to give you a taste of the excitement that could be had there.
5: Libby and I are here at La and this is the uh, the fun center at Expo. I guess you'd have to call La Ronde a combination Coney Island, Tivoli Gardens, and Disneyland. But uh, one thing about it, I think it's probably got a little more class than that uh, carnival atmosphere you usually think of, Libby. Yes, we can.
3: It has that carny atmosphere that people think of. Oh, this really is a little above that, a well, great it, deal above that. This
5: is the first time we've been at the fair at night, and it's really much more exciting, I think, even than in the daytime. Oh, it's
3: so colorful, Alan, even at night. What about all the
5: restaurants here, Liv? Well,
3: you know, Fort Edmonton alone has three very fine eateries, if I may call them that. And there are eight major restaurants, Hawaiian, Dutch, even Cuban.
5: I know that there's every conceivable ride you could think of. There's the standard Ferris wheel, and the merry-go-round but there are some special ones for children oh yes there's a
3: children's world with a kitty's play area and as you said the special rides for children from four to ten years of age and i know they're just going to love it
5: and the prices well they range from 25 cents all the way up to a dollar and they estimate that the crowd here just at laran tonight would be around forty thousand people i can I- believe it i think most <laughs> of them are right here i think a great many of them are <laughs> with us tonight i think probably though the very biggest ride here at the fair is the gyrotron this was uh, designed by an architect whose name is um, Sean Kenny he comes from Dublin and this is a three million dollar ride I think the biggest ever built at any World's Fair and uh, for seven minutes you can go up in space and then go all the way down into a big cavernous volcano pretty exciting but uh, I think if you have a faint heart you shouldn't go on it Libby
3: <laughs> I agree look yeah. while we're
5: surrounded with people why don't we meet some of them
3: well, I have a very nice gentleman here, and where are you from, sir?
5: I'm from York and Saskatchewan, that's out west.
3: Yes, I realize that Saskatchewan's a little west, and we're very glad to welcome you in the east. What Thank is your you. name, sir?
5: Donald Dimitrick.
3: And what has brought you here to Montreal? Did you come especially for Expo?
5: Yes, I came to see Expo and to visit some relatives down here.
3: And what do you think of Expo? Oh,
5: I think it's just great. The, uh, there's so much color, and the, the buildings are really impressive. The uh, pavilions especially uh, are impressive notably the Russian Pavilion, and the American, and most of the other ones, too.
3: Well, we hope that you'll enjoy yourself as you continue your rounds. And oh, here's Alan well. with a guest.
5: Thank you, Libby. What is your name, dear?
3: I'm Susan
5: Alexander. Susan, where are you from?
3: I come from Shore Hills, New Jersey.
5: Ah, what are you doing now at the fair?
3: Oh, well, we're looking at all the buildings and pavilions and going a couple of the rides.
5: You're with a special group, too?
3: Um, yes, we came down with our church fellowship.
5: I wonder now if you had been to the New York Fair? Yes, I had. How do you compare the two?
3: Well, I sort of like this one. It's got more countries
5: represented, and um, I don't know. That's nicer. Well, it's a little bigger, anyway. Isn't <laughs> yes. It? Thanks very much for talking with us. Liv, once again, you.
3: And here's a very pleasant lady, again from the United States. And where are you from? Devon, Connecticut. And what has brought you to Expo? Oh, uh, we have a Girl Scout troop we took on a trip. To enjoy Canada and uh, to see the exploit, which we have enjoyed very much. How many girls are together? Ah, uh, there is 18 girls and uh, 15 chaperones. Enjoy yourself. Thank oh, you. It Here's nice. Alan again.
5: And I have a man from Pakistan. What is your name, sir? Ali Begani. Ali, you're a new Canadian.
3: Oh, yeah, a new Canadian. Not very long, six months only.
5: What do you think of this world exposition? Oh, I can't place it in so many words, but just wonderful. I can't imagine. What have you seen here that you most like? Right now? Yes. Oh, I won't, not much, I would say. Just about everything appeals to you then? Oh, I don't know what to see, what not to see. I'm just lost. You, <laughs> got, you got six months to see it in. <laughs> Ali, thank you, thank you very much. And I think it's uh, just about time for. Do we have some time left? We have 30 seconds, and that's all. Can I talk about this? Please, quickly. This is
3: a teleguide that you can rent here at Expo, and you put it on your ear, just like this. And as you walk around from pavilion to pavilion, you hear the story of the pavilions and the attractions in that area, and as you move from area to area, the story changes.
5: Libby, do you think you'll bring the family back here again later on in the summer?
3: I certainly will bring the girls here with me. I wouldn't have them miss it for the world, Alan
5: i'm glad you said that because you don't have to miss this for the world the world is here and i think i'll bring my family too
3: good we'll look forward to seeing you then. and you
5: good night Bye.
0: wow sounds like it was a lot of fun but this was not the only form of entertainment For example, The Famous Ed Sullivan Show was broadcast live on May 7th and May 21st from Expo 67. Stars on the shows included America's The Supremes, Britain's Petula Clark, and Australia's The Seekers. There were also lots of live entertainment every night. Just some of the acts that performed include The Grateful Dead, Tiny Tim, The Tokens, and Jefferson Airplane. This is just to name a few. There was literally a concert every night. And it's also just the tip of the iceberg. Under BIE rules, each country participating in the exhibition may send performing artists as part of its participation. In the World's Art Festival on the schedule were numerous internationally recognized groups including the La Scala Opera from Milan, Sir Lawrence Olivier's National Theatre Group from Great Britain, the New York Philharmonic, and Classical Theatre from Greece. Expo 67 and the Montreal International Film Festival combined to present a festival of more than 30 feature films during August. Sporting events were also held. There was an international soccer tournament, a lacrosse tournament, and a European-American track meet as well. Spectacles such as Western Rodeo and the first North American appearance of the Gendarmerie Francaise were also part of the festivities. The fair also attracted the most notable people of the time including Canada's monarch Queen Elizabeth II, U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson, Princess Grace of Monaco, Jacqueline Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Ethiopia's Emperor Haile Selassie, France's Charles de Gaulle, Bing Crosby, Harry Belafonte, Maurice Chevalier, Maharishi Mahayesh Yogi, and actress Marlena Dietrich. From a philately point of view, there was also an amazing amount of stamps issued. Numerous countries created stamps to celebrate the occasion. I'll post a link in the show notes so you can explore some of the stamps issued from around the world to celebrate Expo 67, but it's simply amazing. I recently saw a breathtaking 19-panel exhibit done at Lakeshore 2017 by Elmer Clearly that magnificently brings most of these stamps together. For our purposes, I will focus on the issues from Canada Post. On the opening day of Expo 67, Canada Post issued a five-cent stamp designed by Harvey Thomas Prozer. The stamp showcases the Canadian Pavilion, which was built at a cost of $21 million Canadian and covered almost 12 acres. It was dominated by an inverted pyramid named Kadamovic an Eskimo word meaning a meeting place. It certainly was an iconic piece to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Canada. It also followed the trend of the stamps issued by the other participating countries, which also almost always contained the design of their respective countries' pavilions at the Expo. There was also a significant change on this occasion for first day covers. The first day covers were processed by Canada Post from the actual Expo 67 site instead of the customary Ottawa Postmark. This must have been something really special for those contemporary stamp collectors as well. Anyway, as I mentioned, this was an amazing event for the city, the province, and the country. When the event would close on Sunday afternoon, October 29th, 1967, over 50 million visitors had been to various attractions at Expo 67, making it one of the most successful world's fairs of the 20th century. Being that it was such a great event, Montreal tried to keep the magic going, after 1967 mayor jean drapeau announced the exposition would continue for several summer seasons as a collection of international pavilions known as man and his world several countries participated in this new exhibition in 1968 which also was attended by 20 million people some pavilions were added or transformed according to the new themes however as time went on and attendance declined The physical condition of the site deteriorated. It's also important to note that many of the pavilions were designed to be torn down after six months and were simply not built to withstand Montreal winters, so it's not really surprising they did not hold up well. By the end of the 1971 season it became obvious that Man in His World exhibition could not continue as it had. The entire Notre Dame Island site was closed, and three years later was completely rebuilt around a new rowing and canoe sprint basin for Montreal's 1976 Summer Olympics. Also in 1976, a fire destroyed the acrylic outer skin of Buckminster Fuller's Dome, and the previous year the Ontario Pavilion was lost due to a major fire. After the 1981 season, the St. Helen Island site was permanently closed. Both sites fell into disrepair, with the remaining pavilions completely abandoned and vandalized. By 1984, the few remaining original exhibits were closed permanently. After the final Man in His World summer exhibitions were discontinued, most pavilions and remnants were demolished between 1985 and 1987. The former site for Expo 67 on St. Helens Island and Notre-Dame Island was incorporated into a municipal park called Parc des Îles, run by the city of Montreal. In the year 2000, the park was renamed to Parc Jean Drapeau after Mayor Jean Drapeau, who had been so instrumental into bringing the exhibition to Montreal. Today, very little remains of the Expo 67 pavilions, but there are some landmarks that remain. Here are some of the main ones. The Concorde Bridge still remains and can take you to Parc Jean Drapeau. Place des Nations, where the opening and closing ceremonies were held, remains, but it is abandoned and in a deteriorating state. It probably should have been torn down by now, but remains there for sentimental reasons more than anything else. La Ronde is still around as well, and since 2001 has been leased to the New York amusement park company Six Flags. The Alcan Aquarium built for the expo remained in operation for a number of decades until it closed in 1991. The American Pavilion's metal lattice skeleton with its Buckminster Fuller Dome is now part of an environmental sciences museum called the Montreal Biosphere and is certainly a well-known Montreal landmark. The France and Quebec pavilions have been repurposed into what is now known as the Montreal Casino. There was a significant amount of money invested into the structure to make it usable for that purpose. In terms of the Canadian pavilion, the distinctive inverted pyramid and much of the rest of the Canadian pavilion were dismantled during the 1970s. The remaining part is known as La Tundra Hall and serves as a special events and banquet hall. And then finally, there is Habitat 67, a condominium residence which became an international sensation at the time and in 2009 was designated a heritage site by the government of Quebec. It is probably one of the most iconic legacies of Expo 67 in Montreal, and for this reason, it was recently celebrated on a new Canada Post stamp to commemorate the Expo 67 legacy. Now let's learn a bit more about Habitat 67 and how it came to be. Habitat 67 was the idea of a young architect named Moshi Safdie. In 1961, Safdie graduated from McGill University with a degree in architecture. While at the school, he wrote a thesis project on how you could create an affordable, mass-produced dwelling that also produced privacy and a garden for every resident. After graduation, Safdie had gone to work with Louis Kahn, a famous architect based in Philadelphia. Safty was approached by Sandy Van Ginkel, his former thesis advisor, to develop something for Expo 67. Safdie decided to propose his thesis as one of the pavilions and began to develop his plan. Safdie was given the blessing of the Expo 67 Director of Installations, Colonel Edward Churchill, to build the project in spite of his relative youth and inexperience. Habitat 67 comprises of 354 identical prefabricated concrete forms arranged in various combinations reaching up to 12 stories in height. Together, these units create 146 residences of varying sizes and configurations, each form from one to eight linked concrete units. The complex originally contained 158 apartments, but several apartments have since been joined to create large units reducing the total number. Each unit is connected to at least one private terrace, which can arrange from approximately 20 to 90 square meters in size. The development was financed by the federal government, but it is now owned by the tenants who formed a limited partnership that purchased the building from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation in 1985. Safdie himself still owns a penthouse in the apartment building, too. After Expo 67, Safty's career launched to incredible heights, including the opportunity to design numerous projects, including the National Gallery of Canada, the Quebec Museum of Civilization, Marina Bay Sands in Singapore, and the United States Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C., Habitat 67 is truly a significant idea, but let us hear Safdie explain it in his own words.
6: As far as Habitat goes, I would say it's just showing that we don't have to live in cities with all these high-rise apartment cell blocks in anonymous, undifferentiated, like filing cabinets, that we can build wholesome communities like villages and towns with gardens and nature and space and uh, just the sense of community in the high-rise uh contemporary city
0: these comments actually came as this fantastic structure was also honored as part of canada Post's canada 150 celebrations as i mentioned earlier it is the first of 10 stamps to be issued over five weeks by canada post the stamp is in the shape of a maple leaf a first for canada post and the iconic habitat 67 is front and center Let's listen to Moshe Safdie's speech at the unveiling.
6: Honorable guests, friends, and my neighbors at Habitat, the residents. C'est un privilege and un honor pour moi d'être ici avec vous aujourd'hui à Habitat. I am thrilled that Canada Post has selected Habitat to be one of the images of the celebration of Canada 150. I guess today, since it's the anniversary of the opening day, we can say happy birthday Expo, happy birthday Canada, happy birthday Montreal, Uh, It is a great celebration. Those who remember Expo remember it with awe, but I am thinking of the generation for whom it's history and who only know it from the stories, who did not enjoy coming to the site and what it must mean, how can we give it meaning to them. It was an extraordinary cultural event, an economic success, a technological event in world history. And for this generation, I think it's important to know what an extraordinary national achievement it was. But what are the lessons of 1967? It's been said already by several speakers, but I will repeat. It was an act of unity, three levels of government. And it could not have been done with only one or two levels of government. Expo was the achievement of three levels of government. At a moment of great optimism in Canada, you have, I would try to convey to you all to what extent people felt there's a better world to come and we can make a difference. And it was a time of idealism. A lot of idealism and my generation, and I was then the young generation, really had ideals. We are at Habitat 50 years later. Actually, if you had asked me could I imagine then that I'd be here 50 years later, I didn't. (laughs) But I can, I'm proud to actually say here we are 50 years later, not only is it not a dated idea, but I could say it's an idea whose time is yet to come. Um, It is important to understand to what extent this was a radical, controversial idea. I recently spoke to Blake Gopnik. He is one of the editors of The New Yorker. He grew up with his nine siblings, nine siblings in apartment 1011, which is my apartment now, (laughs) without the nine siblings. And he told me something extraordinary, how he would go to school driven by the Habitat bus and be made fun of by his friends at school for living in that ugly concrete building. Well, we've come a long way. But to me, one of the lessons I want to emphasize is what it took for, in terms of the spirit of the time, for a 24 year old immigrant, just 10 years in the country, who never built a building to have his idea approved, endorsed, funded, and constructed. And it was approved and endorsed by civil servants and politically elected uh, leadership. And it took extraordinary courage and faith in the idea. And I want to give you one little story that'll of many, many stories about courage. We submitted the plans to the Montreal uh, permit office for approval. And one of them was a structural review. We submitted the plans and the engineers together in consultation with the engineers of University de Montreal and McGill wrote a report that if the building is constructed as designed, it would collapse. <laughs> it has no expansion joints, there is no way it could stand up. Colonel Churchill was in charge of building Expo, a civil servant, a military man. He called me in and he says, you seen this report? I said, yes, I have. He says, what do our engineering team says? I said, they say it doesn't need expansion joints, it's a new concept. Each box can move separately from the other. There are gaskets, neoprene gaskets. It, it is an excellent structural design. He said, well, I'm the government. I don't need a permit. He opened his drawer. <laughs> he, he put the report there, and he said, go get it built. <laughs> That's courage. So as we celebrate, I'd like to emphasize the support for young people and young ideas. And just reflect, would it happen today? Would, would this happen today? Would a 24-year-old proposing something to the city of Montreal, to the government of the province of Quebec and the federal government get this approved? Well let's hope so. <laughs> let's hope we've learned something. And finally, I want to celebrate the residents of Habitat who have proven uh, physically that this is a community, that the project, the concept works, and you can have privacy and community, and these are all possible in this day and age in our city. Thank you very much. And, And once again, with great humility, I am very happy about this honor.
0: A moving speech. I'm glad Expo 67, Habitat 67, and the work of Moshe Safdie was honored in this series. It was truly an inspired pick for the first of the 10 stamps in the series, and a great reminder of an amazing event that occurred in Montreal 50 years ago. Now let's turn to what's next in this exciting Canada 150 series. We have nine more stamps coming over the next four weeks. Once all the stamps are unveiled, they will be made for sale on June 1st. Each of the 10 Maple Leaf die-cut stamps measure 40mm by 40mm and are printed in 6-color lithography. The self-adhesive stamps will be available in booklets of 10 stamps and gum panes of 10 stamps with circle perforations. Official first-day covers, one for each stamp design and each cancelled in Ottawa, will be available in packs of 10 covers. You can pre-order your stamps now on the Canada Post website. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to see what else Canada Post has in store for us in the coming weeks. If this first stamp is any indication, I think we are in for a treat with stamps that will honor great moments, events, and people of the last 50 years in Canadian history. And don't worry, we'll be covering these releases in future episodes, so stay tuned. Now, turning back to Expo 67 for a moment, you can say it truly transformed Montreal. You can almost draw a line in terms of how the city looked before and after the event. It's a legacy the people of the city are very proud of. So, if you are in Montreal or plan to visit this year in its 375th anniversary, make sure you join the celebration. This year, organizers of Montreal 375 announced a new Expo 67 passport you can get digitally via an app or, like before, a paper one as a nod to the history of Expo 67. As you visit various events and museums, your passport will be stamped and you can relive a bit of the nostalgia. I got mine this weekend. Don't forget to get yours. So that's it for the 22nd episode. Thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing this show with your friends. The time you take to do this helps us get the word out, so we appreciate it immensely. If you're looking for more info about this show, make sure to check us out at teawithpuppets.com. To see the stamps we mentioned in this episode and more, click on the show notes image at the top right corner of our website or the link we've added to the description of this podcast episode. If you have any podcast feedback, ideas for guests, cool stories, or more, we'd love to hear too. You can email us over at feedback at teawithpuppets.com. Now, finally, if you're on Facebook, make sure you like our page or follow us on Twitter at our handle, tea with Puppets. Once again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon for our next episode. Have a super rest of the day, and happy collecting.